Hey guys, it's Corey from Redefining Strength. Welcome to the Fitness Hacks Podcast. In this episode, I've got some great new things coming to you. I'm first going to discuss breaking those annoying patterns that we see building up and we see ourselves repeating. I'm also going to talk with Michelle about fad diets and how to not fall for one. I'm also going to do a new segment on supplements, breaking them down and when and why to use them. I'm also going to share a recipe, a delicious one that's great for breakfast. I'll provide you with some prehab tips. And then in the end, I'm going to talk about maximizing movements and this very important fundamental movement pattern and how to get more out of it. Let's talk about breaking patterns. We all have these patterns we repeat. We're really good for a set period of time. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves unable to keep replicating the habits that we were able to do so easily before. And when this pattern keeps repeating, it can feel very frustrating, like we don't have the willpower or the self-control that someone else has, and that's why we aren't able to make changes. But by recognizing that we have specific patterns repeating, we do six days a week of training for three weeks, and then we end up with an injury, or we get really gung-ho and we're running every single day, and then all of a sudden we just can't maintain that lifestyle and something comes up. When we start to see the patterns that are repeating, we can break them. So it's great to to recognize them. It can be frustrating because you're like, how do I get over this? But the first step really is breaking those patterns by recognizing them. And I want to dive into how you can change the patterns you see repeating. Because if we don't own them, if we don't recognize them, if we don't break them down, we're going to keep repeating them over and over and over again. So in terms of the steps to stop the I'm good all week, weekend eating pattern, in terms of breaking the I train really hard for a few weeks and then get injured or I fall off, Here are some steps to help you bust through that stick point or that pattern. One, own it, okay? When you recognize it's occurring, you then have the power to change it. If we don't realize something's happening, we can't can't avoid it, right? If you don't realize why all of a sudden you're sort of falling off and you don't realize it's happening at the exact same time, you're not able to change that pattern. So the first step is assessing maybe why you feel like you're not getting the results you want and are there patterns repeating and then take ownership of those patterns. Realize they are within your control to change. Doesn't make it easy, doesn't make it simple, but realize they're within your control to change. Then assess, assess what is going on that makes this pattern repeat. Is it that you feel overwhelmed? Is it that something comes up and you're working off an ideal and it's not actually realistic on your life, for your lifestyle? Is it that you don't enjoy it? You know, what is going on that makes this pattern constantly repeat? Think about the emotions of going through it. You know, uh, what feelings lead you to even seek instant gratification if you are finding that you're falling off because stress gets the better of you and you go eat something that you weren't planning to have eaten. But assess what is behind it, the emotions, the feelings, the situations. Then number three is prepare for it. Okay, so let's just say you realize after two weeks, you always seem to fall off tracking. Preemptively, okay, before you even have any struggles, say on the third week or the start of the third week, I'm going to a minimum. I'm not going to track a specific macro breakdown. I'm just going to log what I'm doing and I'm going to track my protein. Or knowing that three weeks in, you generally get injured. Why not do two weeks of building a little bit slower than usual? And then on that third week, automatically go to a prehab or recovery week, right? We can plan in specific things preemptively to help ourselves bust through those stick points because that that keeps you moving into week four, into week five, into week six. Sure, it might not be your ideal, but perfect often holds us back when just good enough or enough moves us forward. So we want to think about what will keep us consistent and sometimes automatically pull ourselves back because then it also doesn't feel like we're failing. 
we have to remember that a lot of times we feel like we're failing because we're not doing some ideal that's really not realistic. Versus if we give ourselves a little bit less, we can do more with that less and feel really perfect at it. So once you've assessed you know, what the pattern is, once you've taken ownership of it, prepare for it. Preemptively design things to help yourself bust through it and keep doing the minimum to move forward. And then number four is suck it up, okay? I'm not gonna lie to you and tell you that breaking patterns is easy because it's not. Some of them are incredibly difficult because they require sacrifices we have to be willing to make. And if we're not willing to make them, we're gonna keep repeating that pattern. It's why doing the minimum can be so key to help us bust through them because sometimes the pain of making a change isn't outweighing the pain of staying stuck. And if that happens, we're not gonna keep embracing the changes. So sometimes breaking down the changes can make the pain of staying stuck outweigh the pain of change and help you move forward. So recognize it's going to be hard, it's going to require sacrifices, and then realize, are these sacrifices worth it to get the upside I want? Are these downsides worth the upside? But also, if they're not, how could I break it down so that I can still break through the stick point and then build momentum from there to make more sacrifices worth it? And I do say sacrifices not to be negative, but because I think it's okay to recognize that there are things we don't wanna to do to get the result that automatic or ultimately really matters to us, right? Like, there are certain things in life we don't like doing. I don't like waking up alarm, but I do it because I know it allows me to create the day that I actually want to create, right? We have to consider, is this downside worth it to get to do more of what we love, to get to feel the way we want, to take care of our body, to be functionally strong until our final day on this planet? So if you're finding yourself repeating a pattern, maybe it's into the new year and you're feeling like, I'm about to give up on these habits. What do I do? I'm going to repeat the same new year's pattern. First, take ownership of it. Recognize the pattern that's repeating then assess why it's happening, all the emotions, feelings, situations that are leading up to you hitting the stick point and wanting to turn around. Then prepare for it. Okay, knowing this is coming up, knowing I'm starting to feel these ways, what is the minimum I can do to sort of keep moving forward even if it's not the ideal? And then just suck it up. And I think sometimes recognizing, hey, I just gotta grit it out and then it'll feel easier after I've gritted it out that you'll be better off, okay? So those are four steps to help you break the pattern and see the results that you want this year. I'm so excited to talk about fad diets with you, Michelle, because not only do you have some very interesting personal experiences with them, and I think a lot of us have dabbled in them, but you had some great insights as to why they're so addictive. So talking about fads, why are they so tempting? You know, a big thing is, is we live in a world with instant gratification. We all want the results and oftentimes we don't want to do the work. So really the reality of fad diets is you you can get kind of that quick fix. You can get some temporary results, but you haven't actually earned those results. And when I say earned, I mean, you really haven't learned or established healthy diets, healthy behaviors, um, good workout habits that are going to be that lifelong sustainability of those results that we're looking for. Instead, you know, we're just doing the quick hacks and we think we're being tricky by hacking the body. But at the end of the day, it's really we're just doing a, a very temporary fix. It's not going to be a long-term solution. And oftentimes it's going to be worse in the long run. I loved how you phrased it even earlier with it's a band-aid trying to fix a broken bone. You're trying to sort of mask the symptoms, put something on it that you're like hoping will work, but it's not actually addressing what the true problem is. Exactly. And that's that's the biggest thing with fad diets is we're really not 
learning how to fix the problem at its root. And the Band-Aid expression, you know, you put the Band-Aid on it, people notice the Band-Aid, they see you trying to make an effort, and we all kind of want that. We want people to know that what we're doing is hard. And the truth is, is oftentimes the real, what's going to have the lasting effects is going to be the things that are the, like, tiny little switches, swaps, the little changes from day-to-day behavior that most people are going to be like, oh, okay, you're doing that great. But if you say, I'm doing this fad diet and it's making me do this and look at my discipline and look at look at all these big changes I'm trying to make to my life, everyone sees that band-aid and they're like, good job. Yeah, you look great. And I think that it, right there is also kind of the scary thing is what people, how people perceive it. Yeah, it, it, we like that congratulations for making those changes. But I also think that Band-Aid is sort of an identifier that we're in a specific group. So it makes us feel included. It makes us feel like we're part of something. So there's that temptation to join them, not only because we want instant gratification, but we feel that, that camaraderie with people. Yeah, we all we all like to say that we're out of that that high school, middle school age where we don't need to find our group. But the truth is you do that your entire life and you're still going to find those those crowds and pick up those habits from each group, whether it's good or bad. So again, like you said, that camaraderie that we're searching for, we're all searching for that still. You're all we're all still wanting to fit in with someone. And I always laugh because I am a huge, like, I love doing like the tough workouts, the miserable runs in the bad weather with your friends, because like, it's that bonding experience, right? We like that. Like, we kind of like suffering together with others and to complain to others and be like, yeah, remember when we did that? And it's the same with bad diets. We want to be like, yeah, this this ratio, you know, like this diet, I'm having to give up this. And these are all the tricks I had to do to be able to trick my mind into not being focused on whatever it is I, I gave up, whether it's carbs, whether it's, you know, eating any type of dessert or whatever it may be, we want to kind of complain and do that in a group. So it's kind of a big component of it as well. And it presents itself as being something simple to get something that will be very dramatic when in reality, we don't consider that, yeah, okay, just cut out this food, just cut out this whole food group. That's all well and good. But that restriction is also what ends up sabotaging us. And I know it's not only the restriction, the mindset, but there's actually some physical things that can happen that derail our long-term success. Yeah, absolutely. You are, whenever we are eliminating whole food groups and I mean, you, you look at people that actually have real food allergies and food intolerances, and that is a big change to their diet that way. Like you already feel restricted. And then on top of that, you'll have people that are like, hey, do this bad diet. And here's a list of foods to avoid. So you're putting even more restriction on your diet. And that can really lead to nutritional deficiencies, big gaps, and long-term, like I said, those long-term nutritional deficiencies. And a big problem with that too is if you are joining any diet and that diet all of a sudden is like, hey, you're doing this diet, here's all the vitamins and here's some shakes and here's all this stuff that you can do that's going to help you um, stay in this diet. It's because that diet's already ha- coming with nutritional holes and gaps that can have very long-term complications um, for yourself physically. But then, like you said, on the other side of that, you have the whole mindset. Whenever we do anything with major um, 
major restrictions, we are going to be developing a scarcity mindset where this really leads to if we ever feel like we fall off our diet or get off the wagon of whatever fad diet we're we're on, we go kind of bonkers and like, well, I'm I'm off of it. So I'm going to just eat everything I possibly have. And I think a good kind of a good reminder of that is if you also grew up in a big family, you probably already developed a scarcity mindset. I grew up with a big family and I remember it was like, if we had ice cream or that sugared cereal that we didn't get very often, that was in the house. I would eat bowls and bowls and bowls of it until it was gone because I knew it was my only chance to get it. And that's kind of comes with the fad diet too. Whenever we have these fad diets and it's like, oh, we deviated. Well, I'm going to eat every, like, I'm just going to spend the whole day eating this because that's what I, that I got to take this opportunity and run with it type of an approach. It also leads back to the fact that we'll have said this worked for me. Keto worked for me. Low carb worked for me. Low fat worked for me. And yes, it worked in that we might've seen those instant results, but it didn't actually work. And that's why we're seeking out something new because it creates that restriction. We get caught up in the simple, like it's easy to start, right? I just eliminate X. I just do X. And so it's simple to start, but it's not actually easy to maintain long-term. So if we could switch our mindset to embracing some of the learning, it would really help. Plus, you know, you have that like, oh no, I can't do that. The restriction, right? That mindset that ultimately sabotages you. And you have those micronutrient deficiencies and imbalances that happen. And especially women with the under eating that often like comes with it, they start to see metabolic impacts as well. Yes. A hundred percent. You're, I always like to describe it. You're trying to start the race backwards. You're starting at the finish line, but you'll end up back at the starting line. So you kind of do this backsliding and it's mentally, that's a huge load on someone mentally when they feel like they've hit their weight goal or whatever goal they had, the aesthetic goal. And then all of a sudden they see it slipping away and it leads to them thinking, I need to restrict more. I need to cut more calories. And that, like you mentioned, that's going to have drastic effects effects on your metabolic adaptations, but also your mental space is going to be a huge disaster as well. And we know that the mental game is just as important, if not more important than actually doing the, you know, following through the daily steps of healthy eating and working out. So it's really just kind of a recipe for a disaster at the end of the day, because and you can look, I mean, there's plenty of research that's even showed that, that the yo-yo dieting where you go up and down and up and down can actually be more harmful for your health than if you were to just kind of stay even, even killed at the weight that you're currently at. So of course, like we all want to kind of lose the weight. We all want to get our aesthetic goal, whatever it may be, but really approaching it in the slow, I, and I always say it, the unsexy way where everyone knows like, yeah, I know I should be doing that, but it seems so much simpler just to avoid all these things. And all of a sudden I'm losing five pounds or 10 pounds and it's only been a month and they are like, it's working. But how many times does that work past that month? Like, is it, or are we going backwards? Are we gaining more? Are we a couple pounds more than when, what we actually started? It's funny too, because you have clients come in who are like, oh, it's slow results. I know I'm getting results, but they're slow results. And I like to point out slow as opposed to what? 
yes, the fad diet, but that hasn't worked, right? These are real results. And I think we only think things are slow now because we have that comparison to those other results. Not to mention, we don't realize that like we start blaming our age, we start blaming hormones because of these previous dieting practices. And so the more we can actually break all those patterns, the better off we're going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a good point too, because the one to two pounds, like everyone's like, well, if if it's working, I should be losing one to two pounds. This is one of my biggest pet peeves because yes, and I say this, any diet that you're, is promising more than two pounds is most likely a fad diet because we know that healthy weight loss is considered the one to two pounds a week. But I always have to remind people one to two pounds because they hear that and they think, well, I should be losing one to two pounds a week. If I'm not losing one to two pounds a week, this isn't working. No, one to two pounds a week is in an optimal condition. That means you're most likely coming in, you know, 50 pounds or more weight to lose. And you're having your diet was not ideal. So there was a lot of like simple changes that made big results. If you're someone that has, you know, 20 pounds, 10 pounds, 15 pounds, and your diet is fairly good that you are. So there's very little to the tweak. It's going to be slower than the one to two pounds results. But as long as you just are kind of, like I said, it's boring. It's not always the sexy way to do it. People aren't going to be praising you for making sure you're eating your high protein and eating your vegetables. And you're not going to get like the big shout outs of, or, or even, I think there is something where people like to kind of brag at parties where like, oh, I can't eat that because I'm following X, Y, Z, or that doesn't follow my diet right now. We kind of like that attention. I mean, there is a lot of us do. We like the attention that we're different. And the big thing is, is that boring side isn't going to get that attention from people. That boring side people most likely aren't going to recognize any change with you in a month. They may not recognize, you may recognize it in a month, the changes that occur, but it may take people two months to actually see the outside appearance before they start being like, Hey, what are you doing? What's working for you? And that's the thing with the fad diets is usually with a fad diet, you're over in a month where with the slow approach, that's going to give you that lasting results. You know, you're really just getting started where people are seeing the change typically around that two month mark. Yeah. The time where you want to give up, you have to keep going. I actually wanted to dive into, to your personal experience. Cause I know you did that study where you had to test out a whole bunch of fad diets and I thought your perspective on it was super interesting. So can you talk a little bit about that experience and how it really impacted you? Yeah. So this kind of, it came, it was kind of funny how it came about, but we, I talk about fad diets a lot and we, I kind of got challenged one time by um, a, someone that I was actually working with because we were discussing this in, in the office and they're like, wait, but how can you say how it really doesn't work if you've never done it? Like you can't truly speak to it if you haven't experienced it yourself. And I'm all up for a challenge. And, you know, sometimes I like to be a little argumentative in these areas. So I was like, okay, well, I'll do them and I'll prove it to you. So we put together a group and we looked at it, not just like, okay, how much weight did I lose? What, what did this occur? But we took it as far as like, how did I feel emotionally? What did it do with my relationship with food? What were the sacrifices I had to make socially to kind of do this? And we tested six diets, um, six different fad diets at the time. And the results were very interesting. And one of the big things was 
like my relationship with food and I, I, you know, I'm a dietitian. I like to consider my relationship fairly good, completely went off the rails for probably a year, year and a half post this experiment. Like I actually remember getting, um, I believe it was ice cream and I remember getting ice cream and I got a tub of ice cream. And I remember texting my partner that I did the experiment with. And I was like, oh my gosh, I ate about a half a cup of ice cream. And it was the first time in probably a year and a half where that was good. And I didn't feel like I needed to continue to eat past the point of my satisfaction because previous to that, I was so into this diet mindset, this scarcity mindset, where anytime I was bringing treats home, they were gone. Like, And, you know, you hear people that are like, oh, I just, I don't have control around treats. And it's that scarcity mindset. It's because we have put this as, oh, we can't have this. And this is why. And then it's hard to break. And like, for me who knew it, I was in it. I took, we took tests, we took eating disorder questionnaires all the time. And like, um, when we were in the fad diet, our scores would get higher for the eating disorders when we were in those fad diets. And it really did. Like I, I knew it, I was aware of it and it's still, I mean, it was still something that took me a long time to break. It's so crazy too. We don't really recognize that mindset. Like even with like tracking macros, I'll see people really restrict during the week. And the reason we try and create that smaller deficit is not only because it yields better results in terms of fat loss over losing muscle, but also because the more you restrict during the week, the more your body is telling you, hey, this isn't normal. You know, you're mentally feeling drained from all the restriction because self-control just isn't infinite. So then on the weekends, when you feel out of control, you have to take a look at how you're restricting at these other times. Yes, it might be working. Yes, in theory, you're trying to create that deficit so you can have potentially a little bit more because maybe you are going out or doing other fun lifestyle things. But there also has to be that recognition of long-term balance, even though it doesn't yield the quick results. And, and that was something too, that I was going to bring up. Cause like I mentioned, like we like, we like the attention when we go to these social outings that it's like, yeah, I can't eat that. Cause we like to be like, I'm better. Like I can't have that because I'm better. And I, I really care about my body, but on the flip side. So while we may like to share that with everyone and why I'm always like, don't be that person at the party. That's like, oh no, I can't eat that. But on the flip side of that, you internally are being like, well, this sucks. I can't eat that. Even though you're like, Hey guys, look at me. I'm, I'm a healthy eater inside. You are constantly bombarded with food. And it's so much of a social, like, I mean, and in society, we use it a lot in social gatherings and it is a very learned behavior to kind of have gatherings that, that are around food. And doing that. Like, I mean, I was doing this for a long period of time and that meant I was on it during birthdays. I was on it during holidays. I had, I mean, there's nothing worse than trying to follow a a diet and not being able to eat your grandma's, you know, famous. I mean, I'm, I love my grandma's ginger snap cookies and I couldn't even eat that during the holidays because it wasn't diet approved. And, you know, by by all means, I was going to see this thing through. So I was like, no, I'm sticking to this stupid diet. And I resent, like, I was so grumpy. That was something that was really big is I had zero patience with, I mean, I don't know how my marriage lasted during this time because I was the grumpiest person. I was very short tempered at work and took things very personal. Um, so like my attitude around things just completely changed. And that, that, 
and it, it just was because food was so much a big part of what I was thinking about constantly. And I constantly was feeling deprived. And so I was just not a happy person. So sometimes if you have a very grumpy coworker, they just may need to eat. Well, if you ever get grumpy, I will note that from now on. In terms of discussing fad diets and recognizing fad diets, because I think that term does get thrown around a lot when people also don't want to respect a diet. If someone is worried, you know, hey, will this diet be right for me? Or am I falling for another fad? What would you sort of recommend they do in terms of an assessment of the diet before starting it? Yeah, first and foremost, foremost is really does the diet list any good foods or bad foods? Is there a huge list that you are restricting? And if so, you're most likely it's going to be a fad diet because there are no foods that are good or bad. It's, I mean, I've said this before, it usually comes down to portion sizes. Foods don't have a moral compass. So really any list, we want to avoid any diets that's giving you a huge list, unless it's like a medical reason as to why to avoid something that you have a medical, a prior medical reason. And does it promise that quick weight loss? Like I said, anything over those two pounds a week, it's going to be a fad diet because to get that result means you are taking extreme measures to get there. So you are going to be restricting something in, in your life, or you're going to be doing something to the point that it's not healthy. So if it's an extreme exercise or an extreme cut of a, of a particular calories or food, that's going to come with that. And really those diets can't be maintained without health conflicts. And is it going to be something that you can actually see yourself continuing on for life? If you have an end date in mind where it's like, oh, well, I only have to do this for 30 days, or I only have to do this for 75 days. And then like, I'm done. Anything that presents its way to you like that is going to be a fad because for you to maintain results, you have to continue that. And if you didn't learn how to maintain, you are completely going to go backwards. You're going to be right back at that starting line, if not higher, because, you know, again, with that scarcity mindset, you probably have picked up some poor food relationships that you're actually eating worse than you were before you joined. So, and you know, those diets can have major, these fad diets can have those major um, metabolic adaptations that come with it. So really paying attention to those things can you continue it? Do you see yourself continuing this for a year? Look at things in the long term. Can you continue it for a year? Can you continue this for five years? Can you make sure that this is going to be something that you are going to be able to still do around the holidays without feeling like you are being left out? And that's kind of the big thing to look look at when you are doing these fat diets. I love that. It's so key. We develop a lifestyle, realizing that a lifestyle doesn't mean you're doing one thing forever, but that you have the foundation to make things evolve in your lifestyle from workouts to, you know, your, your other habits, to your exercise, all those different things. They can adjust based on your lifestyle changing, your needs and goals changing, your age changing, your hormones changing. And with fad diets, they don't allow for that evolution. No, absolutely. They do not. And then a big thing too, that you kind of touched on, but they're also not accounting your activity. If you are doing something, if you are trying to follow a diet, that's not accounting your activity at all. That, I mean, that's kind of a big red flag because you can have a healthy diet and a healthy diet is going to look drastically different for individuals, depending on what their activity level is or what their activity choice is. 
well, thank you so much for those tips. You know, if people are considering a fad diet, whether or not it's preparing for vacation because it's the new year, whatever else, do not do it. As unsexy it is, go back to those basics. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. BCAs, yay or nay. So I want to go over what they are, what the benefits are, and if you should use them and how to use them. So first off, what are BCAs? They're branching amino acids and they're made up of three essential amino acids, isoleucine, leucine, and valine. They can be found in all sources of protein with the highest concentrations being in chicken, beef, salmon, eggs, and whey. So they're not just a supplement, they are found in the foods you eat. Uh, all these sources, though, the BCAs are peptide bound to other amino acids. So in order for the BCA levels in your body to rise, they must first be liberated through digestion and then absorption into the bloodstream. So even with something as fast digesting as whey, it can take hours for the amino acids to be broken down and absorbed. That's why supplements can sometimes be key. The BCAs in a BCA supplement are freeform and they require no digestion. That means they can bypass the liver and gut tissue and go straight for the bloodstream. It means they're more rapidly absorbed and may spike blood amino acids, blood amino acid levels more quickly and to a greater extent than the aminos and protein actually would. So that being said, what are the benefits? In terms of the benefits, there are usually two main reasons people ask me about BCAs, which are gaining muscle and improving recovery, both of which they're touted to do and they can do. So BCAs trigger protein synthesis with or without exercise. And that's super key to note because when combined with exercise, they can help you build new muscle to a greater extent and potentially be that 1% improvement you need, especially if you're a hard gainer. They can also help you still build and retain lean muscle when you aren't training as intensely. So if you're out with injury, while we often think about using a supplement when we're training hard to get those increases, they may be just as important, if not more so, when you're out with injury to help make sure that you're retaining that lean muscle mass. Not only can this help you come back stronger, but it can also keep your metabolic rate higher because you won't have lost lean muscle mass while not training the way you want. So if you are out, don't just think, hey, I have to decrease my calories and I have to start cutting back on things. Also think about what you can add in and BCAAs may might be one of those things that you do add in to minimize muscle loss. So not only are they good to help minimize muscle loss, help build and retain lean muscle, but through doing this, they can help increase your metabolic rate so that you can avoid gaining fat, especially if you aren't training the way you'd like. If you are using intermittent fasting, this is another time to potentially consider BCAAs, and it goes back to, again, those muscle gains. Uh, by using a BCA, you can prevent muscle catabolism when you are fasting, and then because they can actually help you have extra energy, uh, that can help you get more out of your workout routines to build the muscle tissue as well. They also can come in handy if you are an endurance athlete or steady state cardio fiend. Uh, they can help prevent muscle catabolism during those steady state activities. Uh, and that can help you keep on that lean muscle that you might have even worked really hard to build in the off season. BCAs might also be important if you are getting older. And again, it goes back to the muscle gains. Uh, as we get older, we become less able to utilize protein as efficiently. So by supplementing with a BCAA supplement uh, that can activate protein synthesis, we can help ourselves improve those muscle gains as we get older and it can become more difficult. Then going to touching on the other benefits because of how they can improve our muscle gains, they can also help boost fat loss. Uh, they can keep our metabolic rate higher. 
but partly due to the fact that BCAAs can help us build and retain lean muscle, but also to the fact that isoleucine and leucine help improve glucose tolerance and increase energy expenditure and fat oxidation, they could help with that fat burning and fat loss as well. They might even be more beneficial or extra beneficial when you're going through menopause. Uh, we can tend to gain unwanted fat, especially around our midsection. And this can help make sure that we're doing everything possible to not only gain lean muscle, which can keep our metabolic rate higher, but again, improve our glucose tolerance uh, and increase our energy expenditure and fat oxidation to not gain that unwanted fat during menopause when our hormone levels are changing. So going off of that, some more benefits that I wanted to touch on, uh, as I mentioned, the muscle gains, the fat loss, uh, the improved metabolic rate, but also the recovery. Often people come to me saying, hey, I've heard about BCAAs for recovery. Uh, they can aid in recovery and they can not only help you feel better for your next training session, but they can help you actually get in a better training session by decreasing fatigue. So this is honestly probably one of the biggest benefits of them as a supplement and not just getting BCAs from your other protein sources. Uh, but through the supplement, you can actually get it more quickly, which can help with that fatigue during your training session because BCAs can be burned as energy. They can help maintain ATP energy levels during glycogen depleting exercise. So like BCAs can also enhance the body's ability to burn fat. They can then increase your energy pool that way as well. BCAs can also help prevent central nervous system fatigue by inhibiting the uptake of tryptophan into the brain. And tryptophan is used to make serotonin in the brain, increasing tiredness and fatigue. So basically like what BCAs do is prevent our brain from telling us you're done, which is most often why our performance suffers. Let's face it. Like if your brain is telling you you're tired, you're done, you're going to slow down and feel more tired. Uh, BCAs can also help reduce muscle soreness, both after a strength or a cardio endurance workout. And note here, I said, reduce, not prevent. You're still going to be tired and sore. But again, we always want to think about how can we make those improvements in our recovery so we can do more quality, uh, really hit the volume that we want, uh, be able to push harder each and every session to get better results more quickly. Now, are BCAs worth the cost? Because obviously adding in a supplement, we're adding in another expense. So downsides, upsides, weighing everything. One, you can easily get plenty of the amino acids you need from whole natural foods and often without the sweeteners or flavoring added to make BCAs taste better. Although you can get unflavored options, I can tell you from experience, I prefer the flavors that I've actually made personally uh, because they taste really good and they cause me to also drink a little bit more water. However, uh, studies have shown that consuming BCAAs when you have gotten sufficient protein, so gotten, eaten enough, can actually yield a greater benefit than if you're using BCAAs when you haven't gotten enough protein in general. Not to mention, if you're trying to lose weight, you're in a calorie deficit, so creating that anabolic environment is tougher. You're not really getting enough, so to speak, of anything. But at the same time, with proper nutrition and sleep, you can also usually help your body recover properly without added supplementation. And you don't want to be dependent on the supplement. You do want to make sure that you are doing everything you can from a whole natural food standpoint. So it's always considering, you know, how much am I doing? How much is this going to make the 1% improvement? How much do I already have the fundamentals dialed in before I'm adding on these things that could make a little difference because everything else is dialed in? Another thing to consider is B vitamins can become depleted, especially if you're mega dosing BCAAs, as they're critical for amino acid metabolism. So this can cause serious issues since B, uh, B vitamins are essential for everything from energy metabolism, preventing cravings, to managing anxiety and cognition. 
the caveat to this, and the reason I bring this up is because people will mention this, but it's due to mega dosing. So unless you're taking a ton of scoops, which is usually like five or six in a day, because you're doing this strategically for potentially preventing fatigue with an endurance sport, you're really not going to encounter this anyway. Uh, so using like one scoop, which is the recommended serving during your workout will avoid that situation anyway. If you are, though, deciding, hey, I might take BCAs and do the mega dosing in preparation for an event, just make sure to get plenty of uh, vitamin B-rich foods such as spinach, broccoli, beets, bell peppers, oranges, or even take another supplement there, just knowing that you're doing this strategically. BCAs can also prevent serotonin from being created, which can help during your workout to prevent your brain from telling your body it is fatigued. So it can be the good thing of helping you push through a training session and push harder. However, we do want to note that serotonin levels, low serotonin, low serotonin levels can lead to depression, poor moods, and even affect your sleep. This is important to note if your diet is already high in protein and low in carbs and you're considering megadosing prior to an event. So if you are going really low carb and you're pushing that deficit already or training really hard and megadosing for an event, you might want to consider not doing that megadosing uh, or even not adding in a BCA supplement to your mix. Or again, if you're doing it, just add a normal amount so that you don't encounter that problem. It can also be avoided by simply timing more carbs before bed. But again, I just want to throw out all the different things that can be considered when you are thinking about adding a supplement in. So overall, I would tell you, unless you're really doing it strategically, just avoid megadosing and you can see a lot of benefits from BCAAs. And just remember, though, even though they can be really beneficial, they do not replace an actual protein source. They are that 1% improvement and have been shown to even give you better results if you are getting sufficient protein and supplementing with this over to prevent fatigue in your workouts, to push hard, to make sure that you're not losing muscle mass if you are doing fasting, and to make sure that you're actually helping gain the muscle, uh, improving your glucose tolerance and fat or increasing your fat oxidation. So extra important potentially as we get older and go through menopause. Now, how do you use BCAs? This is the final thing I sort of want to touch on. If you plan to supplement BCAs, you probably want to consume them right prior to or during your training. A 2-1-1 ratio of leucine, isoleucine, and valine is optimal, and you want to consume about 5 to 12 grams to get the benefit without teetering into megadosing, which is usually about 20 grams or starts at 20 grams. I'm going to put a link as well in the show notes. Uh, if you are just listening to this, uh, you can check out the blog or if you're on YouTube, I'll put it in the video description and link to my BCAs because I don't talk about or promote anything that I also don't personally use. I'll tell you all the upsides and downsides just so you can even see if it's right for you because one size doesn't fit all, but I have some pretty amazing flavors if you are looking to test out BCAs in your diet and see if they make that difference. Remember, Supplements are always supplemental, but here are some tools to allow you to dial in that 1% and see even better results faster. I've got to admit, I love starting my day with a sweet treat, so I want to share a great granola recipe with you. I love to eat this with even Greek yogurt to boost protein, and sometimes to pack an extra protein punch, I'll even mix my yogurt with protein powder before topping with granola. You can do this with even a coconut or non-dairy yogurt and vegan protein powder if you're plant-based. Preheat the oven to 320. Line a baking sheet with baking paper. Blend one tablespoon of water with the pitted dates. The amount of water you need will depend on how dry your dates are, so start with one tablespoon and add more as required. Add the date paste, tahini, vanilla extract, lemon juice, and lemon zest to a large bowl, and mix until well combined. Add the rolled oats, nuts, seeds, coconut, and cinnamon. Mix well to combine and transfer the granola to a baking sheet. 
spread it out into an even layer and press down with a spatula. Bake in the hot oven for 15 minutes, then carefully flip over and continue to bake for a further 10 to 15 minutes until golden brown. Be careful not to burn the granola. The granola will firm up into crunchy pieces as it cools. This is 15 minutes to prep, 30 minutes to cook. The macro breakdown is 238 calories, 13 grams of fat, 25 grams of carbs, and eight grams of protein. So prehab is super, super key to include. It's often the part of our workouts that we want to skip. It's that mobility work that we need to include in our warm-up. It's the rehab work that we never can stop doing if we've had a previous injury. We can't stop doing what made you better. But there's so much we can do to actually get more out of these exercises. For me, prehab is that foam rolling, stretching, and activation. It's included every warm-up. It's included in every recovery workout. So when you're doing this, you're using foam rolling to relax overactive muscles, you're using stretching to mobilize joints, and you're using that activation to establish that mind-body connection and really make sure that you're engaging the correct muscles. Because so often we can be mimicking proper movement patterns, but not actually using the correct muscles to do so, and that's what leads to overload and injury. Today, I wanna specifically, though, focus on stretching and using it to the best of our ability, because we can't just go through the motions with movements if we wanna see results. When you're stretching, you're not only trying to mobilize joints, especially when you're using it prior to your workout. So you're gonna do more of dynamic movements. You're not necessarily holding the stretch for as long because static stretching has been shown to potentially reduce power. So prior to your workout, you're doing the dynamic stretching. When you're doing it, let's just say, you know, like it's a rotation or whatever else, you don't wanna think about just, oh, I'm stretching, I'm doing the movement. You wanna think about the muscles that are actually driving the stretch. So a basic movement that's so often done incorrectly, and it's super simple, right, is that hip stretch. We see people sort of like throwing their arms up, you know, like going all back, right, arching their backs, instead of actually focusing on that glute to drive the hip extension. But it should really actually be a very small stretch right there, right, where you're using that glute to drive the hip fully extended. In the stretch, you wanna think about not only the muscle that's being stretched, but the muscle driving the stretch. Through this, you're using stretching not only as that mobilization of the joint, but you're also relaxing the overactive muscle through activating the underactive one or the one on the other side of the joint. So if you have tight hips, you're not only stretching your hip flexors, but actually getting the glutes to engage in the way they should to be able to control the full range of motion. So if you're doing the world's greatest stretch, which is a super popular one, love this, it's functional full body, right? You're stepping your foot outside your hand, you're thinking about even on this back leg, right? Engaging that glute to drive this hip into extension. You're focused on your foot's connection to the ground right here to keep the knee in line. You're thinking about driving down. And then as you're opening up, you're even thinking about engaging your back to stretch out your chest. You want to think about all the muscles involved and how they're driving the movement. When you're thinking about even opening up your chest, right? You think, oh, well, you know, I'm rounded forward. I want to make sure that I'm stretching out my chest. But so often we then just take mobility out of our shoulder because we're not actually engaging our back to actually stretch the muscles on our interior chain or our pecs, right? So you want to think about what the opposing muscle group is in the stretch to consciously engage it to almost stop the range of motion so you're truly stretching. When you go to stretch your chest, don't just put your hand back on a wall and be like, okay. Think about engaging your back to actually open up your chest so you're not just seeking out range of motion from areas that aren't really meant to give you that range of motion. So as you go through your stretching, be intentional, focus on what you truly feel working to get more out of the movement. I wanna go over maximizing movements and maximizing movement patterns. 
If you are listening, you can always check out the video if you want to see these moves in action. But the cueing is also what's really going to help you, even if it's just the verbal cueing. So in talking about being intentional with moves, maximizing movements, it's not enough that we go through the motions, especially the more experienced and exerciser we are, the more we can cheat and compensate. So we can do the movement pattern and make it look good, use the proper form, but not be utilizing the correct muscles. It's why people can start to demonize moves like the deadlift, right? Causing lower back pain. Don't deadlift. You shouldn't deadlift as you get older. It's going to cause low back pain. But this is a fundamental movement pattern. And if we don't learn to control it, if we don't use it, we're gonna lose it. And that's what can lead to even further injury and issues as we get older. We need to use the gym as a time to train these movement patterns to move as well as possible. So I really wanted to break down the hip hinge movement a little bit and then give you some ways to modify as well. And I'm gonna demo those if you do wanna check out the video. So in terms of talking about the hip hinge movement, what you're doing in this movement is you're hinging at the hips. When we do this movement, it can often turn into something where we're shifting our weight forward and we're actually allowing ourselves to go forward in our bow over. And this you'll feel the weight rocking forward on the balls of your feet. You can end up rounding forward, right? You're ending up overloading your lower back because whatever you go to lift is further away from your actual base of support and the muscles that should be lifting it and carrying the brunt of the load. So when we're hip hinging, we don't wanna think about just leaning forward. Because when you think about hip flexion, right, you could bend your knee and bring it up towards your chest, which is hinging at the hip or flexing the hip. You can also lean forward. But when we think lean forward as the cue for deadlift, we end up allowing our weight to go forward, the weight we're even holding to potentially shift forward, and that's where we see the lower back overload. So when you think hip hinge, actually think about sitting your butt back to a wall. Whether you have a pole, right, and you can sort of be like, okay, can I rub my butt against it? Okay, I'm gonna push my butt back, and then I'm gonna stand up, right? So that gives you that accurate thing, especially to trust it the first time when you're getting your distance. Or you use a wall, you wanna think, how can I push my butt back into the wall behind me? When you're doing that, your knees are going to soften. This is not a knee dominant movement like the squat where you're truly trying to flex and extend or bend your knees. You're thinking about pushing that butt back to the wall behind you. As you're keeping your knees soft, almost get a better stretch through your hamstring. So you're not stretching again by leaning forward, right? Even when we do a hamstring stretch and we just round forward or lean forward, we're not actually maximally stretching our hamstrings because we're getting a lot of mobility out of other areas or flexibility out of other muscles. So you wanna think about pushing that butt back as you hinge over. Your torso only leans forward in response to needing to counterbalance because your butt is going back. So if you even film this for yourself and watch, you wanna see more of that butt going back in, in, in comparison to something even behind you. So when you add weight, where we start to see the issues come up is that we start to let the weight drift out. So if you notice, I set up with the kettlebell back towards my instep or even towards my heels so that the weight is back, it's close to my body so I can actually sit my butt back. If I were to put this weight out in front of me, right? It's harder to send my butt back because my weight has to go forward in order to grab the kettlebell. So by having the weight back, right, you can see your weight back and then you can end up standing up, keeping the weight close to your body. And then you want to lower it down and back because you're pushing your butt back. The exact degree of knee flexion you use with a deadlift can vary based on how much you want to target your hamstrings over your glutes versus working other aspects of your leg, right? You can do sumo even to get your adductors a little bit more and even target your legs more than your back. But you want to think that the knee flexion is really used just to reach the object on the ground. You're not squatting to drop your butt lower. You're pushing your butt back, and in response to pushing your butt back to meet the weight, you're flexing your knees only as much as needed. 
if you are struggling with training it and you're like, okay, I, I started to get it doing that body weight variation, but I struggle the second I add loads to help you a little bit more using a band can be a great tool. So you'll actually put the band around your hips and walk out from it being anchored and you want to sit your butt back. You might find you almost have that athletic stance where your knees are slightly bent, right? And then you're going to squeeze your butt against it to stand up almost like you're pushing the ground away. When you think about that drive up in the deadlift, you always want to think about pushing the ground away because that creates that tension all the way up to your glutes. We have to remember if there's not tension at our base, we're not going to see the best muscle activation. But using the band can help you learn to control that movement because you can't just lean forward. You actually have to sit back and you have to be in control and able to, to be able to come forward with the band pulling you back. So as you're going through the deadlift, you're having low back aches and pains, if you're finding you're struggling with any movement in general, go back and regress to progress. Be intentional with it and focus on the underlying movement pattern you're trying to train and get the muscles involved that you need. Because guys, if we don't train these movements, if we instead just demonize them and avoid them, we're gonna move so much worse in everyday life. We're gonna see our age, or we're gonna feel like age actually does hold us back when it's not our age, it's our ability to move well, which we can train at any and every age. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of the Fitness Hacks Podcast. I'd love to hear your takeaways, so make sure to share them. And make sure to subscribe as well so you get notified of all future episodes.